Welcome to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen, where we help you navigate the challenges of feeding your family and learn about the role food plays in our health and relationships. Feeding and food relationships can be stressful, confusing, and even destructive. I'm Kristen Saxena, a pediatrician and mother of four who's been researching and sharing what I've learned about feeding for over 10 years. In this podcast, I'll share my experience and expertise to help our kids and ourselves with everyday survival tips for real parents. This podcast is about progress, not perfection. So let's get started. Welcome back to Feeding the Family with Dr. Kristen. I'm your host, Dr. Kristen Saxena. As you know, on our podcast, we talk about food and feeding from all angles. And if you're enjoying our podcast, I encourage you to subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and leave us some comments, what you're loving about the show, topics you'd like to see in the future. We'd love to hear from you. In our next couple episodes, we're going to be talking a little bit about food advocacy. We're going to be talking to some people who are doing some really creative things to help us feed ourselves and our families in a better way. And one of those advocates is joining us today, Amber Stott from the nonprofit Food Literacy Center in Sacramento, California. Thanks for joining us, Amber. Thanks for having me. Now, Amber, you are the founder, CEO, and chief food genius of the Food Literacy Center. And you this is a nonprofit that you created in response to sort of the rising childhood obesity epidemic. Is that right? Yeah. Um, actually coming out of, well, the tail end of the last recession um, started this. So we're actually celebrating our 10 year anniversary this year. Congratulations. That's very exciting. And so in addition to the Food Literacy Center, I should mention, she's also the host of a really fun podcast called Raising Kale. So if you've never listened to that, go ahead and tune in. That one's really fun. And the author of a book called Food Anatomy Activities for Kids, which you should also check out. Super fun. Lots of fun food science-based experiments for kids. Um, I've actually checked it out and I'm excited to do some of those experiments with my kids. And we're lucky enough to be able to give away a copy of your book on this episode. So we'll include more details about how you can win that as well later in the episode. But first off, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about the Food Literacy Center, what it is and what you do there? Yeah, so our mission is to inspire kids to eat their vegetables. And this is really important because, you know, ultimately, if we want kids to protect their health, um, then we need to be eating more fruits and vegetables. And so in in California, the childhood obesity rate is 38%. And, you know, with that comes um, higher rates of type two diabetes. You see kids with adult diseases like hypertension and even stroke. Uh, all of this is preventable if kids eat their veggies. And we also know that only 4% of kids are protecting their health by doing so. And so it's really critical that if we want to change that behavior of eating fruits and vegetables, we have to first um, change, we need to help them with knowledge. Um, we also need to change attitude. Uh, and also because we're working with kids who are living in food deserts, um, 
and you know they're experiencing poverty and a host of other barriers. Uh, we also have to think about what are the barriers to access and and things like that. So it's a it's it's a pretty complicated mix of things to get those vegetables into our kids. But uh, that's that's what we're here to do. And can you tell us a little bit more about the approach that you actually take through your programs? Sure. So uh, we have a methodology that we use that we've developed over the the decade that we've been working, um, and we call it our um, broccoli boundaries and radish routines. <laughs> and these are basically just things that you know, um, little by little, our volunteers and our staff would try with the kids, and we'd come back and we'd share. Oh, I did this, and it really worked. And after a while, I started writing them all down and I was like, we have a, a methodology here, you know, and it actually then now we train everyone on it and and we get results when we use it. So basically what it is, is these broccoli boundaries are us <clears throat> trying to establish a healthy environment in which we create boundaries for success. So we're going to create a set of rules that we ask the kids to follow. And then the radish routines are things that we're going to ask them to repeat over and over again until we get that ultimate behavior of vegetable eating. So for example, a broccoli boundary that we have is um, don't yuck my yum. And this is something that one of the kids said, and it really, um, we picked up on it and we started using it. And it basically means, you know, you might not like a certain thing, but it might be your neighbor's very favorite fruit or vegetable, and we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So don't yuck my yum. <laughs> and so when we say this with our kids, it helps with that attitude adjustment, right? Instead of seeing a new fruit or vegetable and being like, ew, I don't like that, it actually opens them to saying, oh, I didn't think that maybe somebody else likes this. And if my friend likes it, maybe I'm going to like it. And so suddenly they go from being very hesitant to being extremely curious. And then what happens is we bring new fruits or vegetables every single week. So this would be a radish routine we do something called produce of the day where we bring in a new fruit or vegetable for the kids to taste. And because we have this boundary that creates this openness to eating new fruits and vegetables, when we bring in this new produce of the day, their attitude tends to be, what is that? I can't wait to see if I like it. And next thing you know, we got kids eating vegetables. So that's just one of the ways that we use this. <laughs> that's awesome. And is it, this is mostly through after school programming or what's your format? Uh, well, that's exciting uh, and changing as well. So for a decade, we have been doing this in after school programs in Title I or low income schools. And um, in just a few weeks, we are going to be receiving the keys to a new cooking school that I convinced our school district to build for us. It's a 4,500 square foot zero net energy facility Amazing. that has a cooking classroom that will fit about 30 kids. And um, we are building it on the campus of an elementary school that is across the street from public housing. So we're serving one of our poorest 
terrorist schools. And um, and those kids, those 300 kids that attend this elementary school are going to get to go to cooking and gardening classes during their school day. So this Amazing. is uh, a real game changer for um, our approach. And the reason the, the school day piece is, is so important, um, I can reach more kids serving after school because I can get into a bunch of schools. I can deploy my staff and volunteers and we can, we can, you know, reach a little higher scale. However, the importance of doing this during the school day is that we can align this healthy food education with core curriculum. So, you know, things like measuring, um, science, math, um, and it becomes a STEM based um, type of learning and it's hands-on. So, so this has a lot of, of, um, impacts. The, the most important one really is at a policy level, um, getting this kind of education embedded in the schools, because ultimately we're not going to see success in turning over these numbers of childhood obesity rates, unless we can get this in every school, everywhere at all grade levels. Right. Yeah. But the other reason that this is so important, particularly for the um, kids that we are serving, we see a lot of um, kids that are struggling with traditional classroom settings, right? Uh, they really learn best from hands-on education. So we're also going to see academic performance go up because learning to measure and do math um, by, you know, uh, a quarter teaspoon that's going into my pizza dough is a little more yeah. interesting for some kids than uh, let's get out a piece of paper and put numbers on it. So this this real world approach um, is really critical. So lots of reasons why we want to have this type of education that's embedded in the school day. Yeah, that's super exciting. And I think definitely just sort of that decentralized classroom and that hands on learning. I think there's been a lot of research, like you said, just showing that that is a way that lots of people learn best. So I think that that's super cool. One thing, though, that I felt that I thought when you said this, and I think you kind of glossed over, was how you got the school to build this kitchen for you. Um, like, can you tell me a little bit more about clearly you must have had some sort of metrics or results that that motivated the school to want to do this for you. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you pulled that off? <laughs> um, <laughs> so it, it's a lot of things. Um, we and we started this project six years ago, so we were barely getting started as a nonprofit when we were approached um, by the school district. They actually had this. It's a two point five acre piece of property. And the city parks were uh, working with them to, uh, they wanted to turn it into a farm. And they couldn't find anyone that wanted to do that with them because they wanted the, they wanted someone to just go and farm for free and like have it benefit the kids. So everyone was like, no thanks. Um, then they came to me and they said, hey, do you want to build a farm? And that would be really great <laughs> and provide some programs for our kids. And you could just do that for us. Right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Said, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I said, well, what our kids really need is a cooking school. And if you'd be open to helping me figure out how we get a cooking school out there, then I'd be open to conversations about 
building a farm. Mm-hmm. So that's where it began. And, um, and why, why us, we had at that point already been in successfully providing programs in, we started in one school with 120 kids. Um, and then word got out like wildfire. It was crazy. All of a sudden, everybody wanted this program and it was literally me going in and teaching 120 kids a week. I would write a lesson. I would run it by a program committee that I put together with people that had like master's degrees in nutrition and education and stuff. And they would give me feedback. I would go in and deliver the lesson and adjust it. I would be developing recipes and so so that's how it started and then eventually i got volunteers to join me and schools just started hearing about it school nurses would reach out uh principals would reach out and next thing you know we're you know getting more and more schools and 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 everywhere we went people loved it um and it it was working we had this um like i said these the this methodology that we were sort of just um inventing and creating and it was working so so they were definitely seeing kids eating their vegetables we also made it free so this is one thing um we tried charging for it like charging the school district but there really is no money in these title one schools for something like this and you see this across the state all these programs are being run by generous volunteers who are just this committed to this type of education so um so it was free you know so that is appealing of course any school is going to want something that's working and the kids like for free um so you know we just had this mix of things and then on the policy side politically uh we also had a lot of relationships that we had been building over the years with you know um state and local politicians and so there was also this um element of having had positive relationships and having you know if we set our minds to doing something we had a reputation that we could get it done so i don't know it's just a a lot of things there isn't no there is no um there's no broccoli boundaries and (laughs) radish routines for how the cooking school came together i wish there were it's just a lot a lot of elements and and also just me going to meetings and kind of being stubborn and saying you know if this is if this is going to work if this is going to move forward if you want this from us we need this cooking school and it went from it was going to be like they were going to put an old portable and you know we would mm-hmm. put our toaster ovens or whatever out <laughs> there it went from from that to one day i walked into one of the meetings and they were like we think we might make this zero net energy i was like come again amazing <laughs> so they they must have found some something within the district that spurred them to say you know what if we're going to do this let's commit to it fully and and yeah and the dream has been built uh we're gonna get the keys uh like i said in a matter of maybe a a month or two it's amazing so that's super exciting congratulations (laughs) so the other thing you said is you know clearly you've shown that this is working so what kind of results or what measures do you follow to kind of decide how to develop your programming 
So yeah, our, the number one thing that we measure is that produce of the day that I mentioned. So we, uh, every single week we bring the attendance roster and the teacher or the volunteer is physically watching the students and ticking a box next to their name, yes or no, did they taste the produce of the day? So that's every single week. And in um, most of our schools, we are currently at a 95% success. So that means every week, 95% of the kids, when we hand them a new fruit or vegetable, whether it's a beet, cactus, bok choy, you name it, they're saying, yeah, I want to taste that. So that that's behavior change. And that's the thing that is measurable in the classroom in front of us. Um, that's our, our most important measure. Um, and then we do things like pre-post surveys to find out, you know, um, if the kids like the program, if, if they're going home and asking their families, you know, like 70% of our kids are telling us that they go home and request the foods that they've tasted in our class. And anecdotally, we also see this. So we'll have parents who will show up and say, you know, um, my kid tasted um, kale for the first time. And how do I find that? I really want to go to the store and buy that now. Um, or we'll have kids that'll come back and say, Oh, I loved those persimmons. I went home and I asked mom if we could buy those. And mom said, well, we'll have to see what they cost when we get to the store. And then in fact, realize, yeah, those are something that we can afford. And so, so then they're buying those. So, uh, so yeah, those are kind of the kinds of things that we are measuring. Very cool. Just getting those kids introduced and exposed to lots of new foods. That's very cool. Um, so the other thing that you had said was sort of your big impetus in the very first place was related to the childhood obesity epidemic and what you were noticing. So can you tell, tell me a little bit more about when you first started this, sort of why you decided that you thought this was the way to do it, or was there anything in particular that you just were moved to say, okay, this is what, this is the nonprofit I want to start? Yeah, so... I, I actually care about all things within our food system. Um, you know, I, my master's is in African studies and women's studies. Um, I've worked in microfinance and health education around the world. I've worked in domestic violence shelters. I've worked with, um, homeless women and kids. Um, and for me, the thing about food is that it touches all of those issues. Uh, it, it, there's environmental impacts. There are issues of race, equity, um, gender, you name it, health, obviously, um, it's all wrapped up in our food system. And so, um, coming out of, well, we are still, you know, in the last recession. Um, I think it's kind of similar to what's happening right now in this, in this, uh, economic and, global pandemic we're we're seeing people who are saying i need to follow my heart you know obviously time is limited on this earth we don't know what the future is going to hold and by god i want to do something today to make a difference and i was already working in nonprofits, but uh there wasn't anything really like the food movement was just in in its infancy in the country at that time. So, so there weren't a lot of programs that were really addressing very many pieces along our food system. So 
I was interested in all of it. Uh, and I started interviewing other nonprofits around town to find out what was the highest need and what were the biggest gaps. Obviously, we had um, things like our food banks. And when I talked to them, they were saying, yeah, our problem is we're being told by all the experts that, you know, we should pull things like junk food off of our shelves at the food bank and we should start giving out healthier food. But people don't want to eat that. So how do we be successful if there isn't um, a market for, for on the consumer side for wanting this healthier food? And I thought, well, I know how to cook. I could that sounds like an area where I could help. Um, and also I'm a big kid at heart. So, um, and when you look at all the research of behavior change, um, the two most successful campaigns out there are um, anti-tobacco and seat belts. And those campaigns do not target adults. They target kids. Why? Because when it comes to behavior change, we adults are set in our ways <laughs> and it is very difficult to get us to change. Kids, however, don't have habits yet. And it's very easy to get them to develop healthy habits if you get to them very early. Um, so that's where all of this sort of collided. It was like, here's an area where I feel I have enough talent to make a difference. Um, I feel like the research is pointing to this. There's a need in my community that others are saying they get behind. So I just had done a ton of research to know that this really would be the right path um, and the right path for my skill set. So, so yeah, I just uh, called a friend who was running an after school program and said, "Can I come in and start giving this a, a try and see where it?" see where it goes. And um, man, it took off like gangbusters. So it was right idea, right time. That is super <laughs> cool. That is super cool. I agree. You know, when I was practicing in pediatrics, it was certainly to me the most obvious crisis that children were facing. Currently, health crisis was the obesity epidemic. And I couldn't help but think that the way that it was being approached frequently was a lot of kind of the same way we do with adults, this calories in, calories out, eat this, don't eat that. Um, and it doesn't work for adults and it doesn't really work for kids either. And so I really love kind of your more upstream approach where it's like, let's just change the way they're looking at food, the kind of food that they're getting excited about, um, the kind of food that they're familiar with and that they love. Because like you said, uh, you know, kids aren't aren't as set in their habits as adults are. And so I think you have just such a better chance at getting attitudes and habits changed when you target the kids. And then also, like you said, I think kids have an unbelievable way of changing their families. So when the kids, you know, if the kids wear their seatbelts, I think the, the parents are more likely to wear their seatbelts. And when your kid tells you to stop smoking, it's a little bit more motivating to stop smoking. So I think same thing, if if your kid's motivated and wanting to eat fruits and vegetables, it's kind of hard not to want to say yes to that and bring them into your daily routine. So I think that that's super cool. Absolutely, that yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, another really important uh, thing that you picked up on is that there also at the time, um, if you think about the very early um, part of the food movement, it was um, definitely more an elite a uh, group of people who were sort of setting the tone and there was a lot of shaming and blaming for 
how people ate or the choices they were making rather than let's meet people where they're at. Yes. And, and because I had worked in so many nonprofits, um, I sort of had this social work mindset that, you know, you don't um, berate people for the things they're doing wrong. You instead, you, you celebrate them for the things they're doing right. And so rather than coming in and saying, we're going to take all these things away from you, these are kids who are food insecure. Mm -hmm. We don't know if all they have in their fridge at home is bologna. We don't know. And who are we to tell them not to eat that, right? Um, So instead of coming in to try to take things away, what I wanted to do was how do we give them all of the joy and the fun of adding fruits and vegetables to their life. And so that's the approach that we take. And of course we want to educate them along the way so they understand what sugar, salt, fat, what those things are doing to their body so that they understand how it makes them feel. Um, And because we're getting them excited about the healthy stuff um, and helping them fall in love with it, our hope is that they see it as a joy. And that is absolutely what's happened is these kids get so excited. They love our recipes. Um, during the pandemic, we actually, the the bright side of it is that um, obviously our entire nonprofit got taken away from us the minute schools closed. And we were like, what are we gonna do? Um, and thankfully we have a really great relationship with our school lunch program and they were distributing curbside meals throughout the pandemic. And so, uh, we had a call with them and came up with the idea that we would distribute our recipe kits so that the kids could keep cooking all the things they learned how to cook and had fallen in love with in our program, but they could take them home and cook those meals with their family. And that was the first time we actually got into our kids' homes with our program because the parents were picking these boxes up and their kids, the principals would would send out the message like, hey, food literacy is going to be at your school. If you want a kit, you know, make sure to come by during school lunch distribution. Well, many of our school principals told us the cars on Food Literacy Center Day would line up because the kids had said to the parents, I love those recipes, please go get me my cooking kit. So the parents were getting them, bringing them home. And the kids were like, I want to cook that recipe. And then they were cooking it together and eating it as a family. So we got the parents hooked on our recipes. So this is part of what we've done by making it such a joy is that it's really, you know, people get excited and it was like a bright spot during the pandemic. So, uh, we're really proud of taking that approach and, and, um, I think that is the the secret sauce of why Food Literacy Center works. I think that's awesome. I mean, so many things you said, I think, really resonate. Number one was just the idea of adding something that's joyful and good for you versus I think a lot of the approaches sometimes are very restrictive and negative, which I think in the long run, you know, end up psychologically very complicated and often kind of we shoot ourselves in the foot, I think, with that kind of approach. So I love that. And then the other question I had for you that I, I you addressed a little bit, which I think was really exciting, was a lot of the data that's now coming out of COVID in terms of kids and obesity and their health is very unfortunate. So it seems like there's been a pretty substantial rise um, since with all the stay at home and since the pandemic in childhood obesity, as well as 
health issues like type two diabetes that have all been associated with that. So you did mention how you guys were able to pivot and it sounds like pretty effectively with your program, which I think was really cool and innovative on your part. But is there anything else that you've kind of noticed in your space in terms of what we're seeing in terms of the data for kids and and anything that you're changing in terms of your approach knowing that? Um, what we're seeing is massive rise in food and nutrition insecurity. And this 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 makes me mad. Um, I I this is a policy problem. And so I, I'm glad you brought this up because I do really want to address it. It it is so disturbing to me that we in the last recession, the thing that spurred me to start this nonprofit is at the time I was working at a nonprofit that worked with um, homeless women and kids. And we saw this huge rise in homelessness. And when the economy came back, it did not come back for our most vulnerable folks, the folks that were food insecure, the folks living in poverty. It did not come back for them. But we're measuring our we're measuring our economy based on incorrect values and incorrect numbers because when you have this massive gap that just keeps growing between the wealthy and the poor what happened when this recession came is we spiraled these folks even deeper and we grew the number of folks who had been living on the edges and now are struggling and and who gets the brunt of that are kids mm-hmm. so you know, we we didn't address this coming out of the last recession. We're we're at least starting to hear people think about it and talk about it now. But it's it's incredibly high. And so for how we're going to be addressing this, um, we are now in the business of um what essentially is a little bit food banking, I would call it. Um, we are now in that business. Um, so you had talked about how, you know, we really have um, an upstream approach at Food Literacy Center. But what happens in these times of crisis is we have to do crisis response. And that prevents programs like ours from doing more of the upstream work because now our resources are tipped in the direction of crisis response. And if all of our nonprofits and our resources are shifted to being primarily crisis response, what we need is policy that's gonna actually take these crises away Mm -hmm. um, so that we can get back to this upstream work because otherwise we are gonna continue to see rates of nutrition insecurity, um, obesity, all of that are going to continue to rise because the upstream things can't get as much attention as they had. Um, so, so we are going to return to schools. Um, we just opened last week, our, our, uh, schools just opened last week. So we are returning to our hands-on cooking classes in the schools. But in addition to that, we are going to be continuing to send home recipe kits and fresh fruits, fruit and vegetable kits, because we know that that problem isn't going to go away. So we are going to have to, um, you know, 
pull the resources that we have um, to be able to try to do both. Um, so I think that is a, a real concern um, that I hope um, our policymakers continue to think about so that we can really um, get back to this upstream and that we don't have so many people that are living on the margins and so many kids who go home and don't have enough food. Absolutely. I agree. I think, and I had to think part of it hopefully will be improving as we see kids returning to school and just having that structure. I think that for me, a lot of it, I I think was related to also not having sort of the structure we have in school with set meals and snack times that were reliable for kids and not having parents who potentially were also trying to work from home and have their kids at home. I mean, having done that myself, it's very difficult, especially even if they're doing online school. I know my kids had lunch at four different times on their online school. So it was like four, four lunch times, you know? So, and if you're trying to work, I just think it was, it was such a difficult time for for everyone, for kids, for parents. And so I'm hoping with the return to school, we'll see a little bit of that improving. But I think that just having this data out there, and like you said, it's something we need to pay significant attention to because that information to me, it really spells a lot of healthcare disasters down the line. And so to make sure that policy is that we're really looking what is the what do we need to do upstream to help these kind of things not happen? Um, I think you hit it right on the head. And our kids' parents need good jobs that yes. pay a living wage. That is the ultimate solution. Um, that the, the fact that these kids have to rely on their school for their food mm-hmm. is because their parents don't earn enough. And that's a huge problem. If we ultimately want to fix these things, we have got to fix that. So I'm going to change topics just a little bit. I watched a TEDx talk I think you gave a few years ago, and you talked about something called building broccoli habits. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can you talk to me a little bit or tell our listeners a little bit what your broccoli, build, building broccoli habits were? Yeah. Um, so this actually kind of gets to these um, broccoli boundaries and the radish routines that, that we talked about. So so that produce of the day that we're doing in the classroom with our kids, one way that translates to building a broccoli habit at home as a family, um, one thing I recommend is that every week you go to the store together and you let your kid select one new fruit or vegetable and you kind of make this a fun game because what happens is um, folks will say okay i need to eat healthier they'll go to the store they'll buy every vegetable and fruit in sight (laughs) and they'll cram it into their fridge and then it'll come dinner time and they'll be like i don't think i know what to do with this eggplant or oh you know and it suddenly you're overwhelmed and then you ignore all of it So what I recommend is one, one new fruit or vegetable, and you make it your mission that week that you're going to learn what to do with it. So whether you're going to just chop it up and eat it raw, dipped in some hummus, or you're going to figure out a recipe where you're going to roast it. Um, But every single week you make it your goal that you're going to try a new fruit or vegetable, because what's going to happen is at the end of the year, you're going to have like 20 new favorite fruits and vegetables that you know how to eat, you know what to do with them, and that you and your kids and your family are excited for. 
So that's that's one way to start building a broccoli habit into your life. Um, the other, and this is another one of our radish routines at Food Literacy <laughs> Center, is to eat a fruit or vegetable with every snack or meal. And, and the reason we're doing this is I think it's very complicated to go, well, I know that the USDA wants me to eat two to three cups of fruits or veggies, and is the apple half a cup or one cup or what was the handful of grapes? Who can do that math? Yeah, That's it's too unreasonable. <laughs> exactly. So instead, we say eat a fruit or veggie with every snack or meal because by the end of the day, you're going to have not only eaten the recommended daily amount, but you're also going to start building a habit of eating fruits and vegetables because you're going to start to notice when they're not there and be like, yeah, for me to be healthy, I need to be eating these all the time, right? It's not just a one salad a day and I've hit my goal, right? Yeah. You need to be eating them always. And this is the way to build the habit. So for example, if you like eggs for breakfast, well, chop up some green onions and throw them on top of your eggs. Get some amazing sun gold tomatoes that are amazing and ripe right now. Put a handful of those on top of your breakfast. Um, maybe you like chicken sandwiches. Well, what about having some sliced and roasted bell peppers on there? So start thinking about the things that you eat when you're ordering it, when you're ordering pizza. What are the two vegetables you like with your pepperoni? Right? Mm -hmm. Let's start putting those things into our daily habit. And then eventually you might also start shifting and being like, man, I really like these roasted peppers what about just having those on the side and, and you'll eventually start incorporating more fruits and vegetables into your life and you'll notice that you start liking the taste and flavor of those more and more and craving your body will be like we liked that i feel good my body feels good right and eventually you're gonna start um having more of those but start small start simple and eventually you will really see your life start to change i love that i really do because it's just like you said i think it can be overwhelming when you look and especially if you're feeding a child and you're really going to say okay you need to eat x amount of fruits you need to eat x amount of vegetables this much and you get in there and it's not real life like i can i can map out exactly what i think my kids should eat every day that doesn't mean it's going in you know <laughs> and so i just love i think it's so doable and it really doesn't require a lot of hard thinking to just say okay every meal and snack we add a fruit or vegetable whatever seems great and then the other idea about just kind of having this fruit or veggie of the week i mean kids they are all over that stuff. Like the excitement that that builds, like, oh, this is the fruit of the week. You know, suddenly it's like the coolest thing you've ever done. So I think those two things, very doable for parents, um, great way to establish healthy habits for the kids and actually a lot of fun, I think, for the whole family. So I think that those are great. So before we move on to the next segment, I did, I did want you to tell us a little bit about your book. Do you mind telling oh, yeah. us just a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's called Food Anatomy Activities for Kids, and it's basically a, a food history book that has tons of STEM-based activities. So for example, you're going to learn about um, the history of salted foods. Why did we ever start putting salt on our food? Uh, well, it was a way to preserve foods, and uh, we talk in that chapter about you know, how salt works in our body and why today we need to be more careful with the amount of salt we eat. Um, so there's a there's a perfect uh, blend of a little nutrition, um, 
a lot of history and a lot of science in there um, that I think will give kids a very full picture of our food and also help them kind of understand how it works. Because if you're hearing about salt and you're reading about osmosis, well, what's cooler than going into your kitchen and making salt cured egg yolks, which is a process that uses osmosis where the water in the egg yolk gets replaced by salt. And suddenly you have a, a, a yellow disc that looks and works more like cheese than an egg. And this is something super simple that a kid can do on their own. Um, and so throughout the book, we, we talk about these kinds of things. So there's the salt cured egg yolks. We have bread where we talk about yeast and how yeast works. Um, we talk about all kinds of fun stuff. Um, everything from there's a, there's a, a mug cake recipe where we talk about leaveners and we do an experiment to see how we can make a mug cake with and without a leavener to see what are those what are things like baking soda and powder doing in our baked goods uh well one's gonna rise and one is not and so these are fun ways that are really hands-on that kids are gonna get to start to learn and understand how their food works very cool like i said i've i've checked it out and it really is very doable, kind of simple experiments, but the food science is solid and really stuff that kids, I think, can get really excited about. So I am very excited that we're able to give away a copy of your book. And in order to be eligible to win, all you need to do is to comment on the Facebook or Instagram posts for this episode. And uh, if you're lucky enough, we'll send you a free copy of this. If they are not our lucky winner, what's the best way to get a hold of this book? Uh, you can go to our website, foodliteracycenter.org, and you can um, make a donation and and you'll get a copy of the book that way. Um, that's the the that's the way that Food Literacy Center will um, earn some revenue off this book. Otherwise, um, you can find it wherever books are sold. Perfect. Awesome. Uh, and we'll include all the links to your website and everything on the show comments. So the next section of our of our episode is something we call Ask Me Anything. So I have a couple of questions from listeners and the, I guess the part maybe you did or didn't know is that they're also asking you anything, but they're usually not too personal. So our first question is from Jenny. She says, my girls are 10 and 12 years old and they are the pickiest eaters on the planet. I have fallen into serving them separate meals for dinner. What should I do? A, stop. <laughs> right. Stop, I think she knows stop that. Stop the separate meals. Here, here's a, um, a broccoli boundary and a radish routine that we have at Food Literacy Center. So, um, but I'll, I'll explain how it works at home. So, so you will set the healthy boundary of what is going to be served. You still want to give kids choices. That's important. But you are setting the boundary within which those choices are made. So when when you make supper, you're gonna, for example, have taco night. And you are gonna say, at, at our house, we eat a fruit or vegetable with every snack or meal. Tonight we're having tacos and you have your choice of which vegetable to put on your tacos. I've got 
chopped lettuce. I've got chopped tomatoes. I've got um, some grilled peppers, whatever your topping choices are. And you can pick whichever of those you want. But what we're having tonight is tacos. Yeah. So so you are not making separate meals. And and I would say that the kinds of recipes you begin eating in your house then um shift a little bit right so we're having spaghetti tonight and you have your choice of which of these toppings to put on so you're going to start that way right real simple adding things like a topping or you know we're going to have um you know we're having chicken tonight um you have your choice of a side salad uh carrots or whatever right so you're gonna you're gonna make fruits and vegetables, um, a household thing that we eat these, uh, and, and the choice is going to fall within those rather than the choice is open-ended and, Hey, what do you want for dinner? Well, every night they're going to want chicken nuggets or mac and cheese. Right. So, so you are taking control of what the choices are and eventually, and it's, and you don't need to make a fight about it. If they just eat the taco shell, that's fine. Um, because the minute you start fighting about the food also, um, is also the, the, then kind of of creates. Yeah. So, so you keep it positive. Um, you keep it fun and high. And if the kid starts crying, move on. Like, (laughs) totally. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And we've talked about that before, just sort of having, uh, you know, if you're familiar with Ellen Satterd, she talks a lot about division of responsibility and feeding. So sort of that same thing that, you know, the whole family sharing a meal, certainly the parents should be able, they decide what that meal is and what the choices are. And if we're following our broccoli boundaries, then we've got fruit or vegetable at every meal. Um, But then the other thing is, again, like you said, to allow the child then the choice within those boundaries and also you know how much of what they're of that they're going to eat of what you're presenting I think the other thing to point on in this question for me is that her kids are 10 and 12 and I think for parents that feels like we're too far gone but it it in reality they're still young children and even adults can change habits so certainly at 10 and 12 we are we are not anywhere in a zone where we feel like our habits have become unchanged but I always feel like as a parent for some reason you always feel like this is the way it is and this is the way it's always going to be even though that's not really the case at all and when you get into the the kids that are a little bit older uh, I think it's easier to kind of feel like, oh gosh, I've I've already screwed this up. Um, but just to kind of realize that is not the case, and you're still in that window because to me, when it really gets hard is when you know they've got a driver's license and they're out doing their own thing, right? And so then it's like, well, it's hard to control where they're even at for dinner sometimes. So I think. All hope is not gone. There's plenty of time to make positive changes. And then just like you said, to kind of create the kind of atmosphere and boundaries of shared meals um, within that. So absolutely. I have one more question. It is from Allison. She says, is aspartame bad? My daughter drinks water, but she loves crystal light. Am I poisoning her? (laughs) (laughs) Um, For kids, they need to be drinking water. even juice, they should be, it should be limited. Um, because again, going back to this habits, um, what your daughter is looking for is sweet. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, the number one contributor, 
the number one contributor to the amount of childhood obesity we are seeing is sugar sweetened beverages. Mm -hmm. So, um, I would, I would not have crystal light at all, to be honest. Um, it would be something that I would limit to, you know, um, not, and not like we're going to limit this to special occasions because in America nowadays, everything is cause for a special <laughs> occasion. Um, I would, I would really limit that to, you know, this is a thing we have. I, I don't know. Um, it's <laughs> I don't tricky. Even know. It's yeah. Hard. But it, 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 I wouldn't even limit it to weekends. I would be, you know, it, that would be a thing I would have a couple times a year um, because you do not want to build the habit of drinking sweetened beverages. They're just, they're, they're that damaging. So I would say if there is one thing I do recommend eliminating whole hog, it is sugar sweetened beverages. Yes. So, well, I always think this is, you know, this is always the question and, uh, cause aspartame kind of falls under that, like non-sugar sweetener, right? So then there's been all this research about these artificial sweeteners or even the sort of natural non-sugar sweeteners. And the only thing I would say that the idea people have is like, oh, well, this is great because I can still have this sweet beverage with that with very few or no calories. Um, but it, it hasn't really played out the way that you would think it would if, if that was going to, you know, solve our obesity epidemic that was related to sugar sweetened beverages. We know that's a contributor and this should be helpful, but it really hasn't translated. So the only thing I've ever seen where it showed any sort of benefit, if you were going to say, you know, should I drink like a artificially sweetened beverage versus sugar sweetened is for your teeth. Um, but everything else, you know, the, there's been studies that have shown, you know, perhaps it even increases obesity. Um, there's no higher or there's no lower rates of diabetes for people that are drinking these things. So it's not doing what we think it should be um, in terms of I know there was lots of research in the past about all kinds of cancers and things in rat studies. And I think those have been rather inconclusive. Um, and there's a lot of research, I think, too, that it's changing our our gut biomes and we're just starting to get in to figure out what that's doing to us. Um, but I think one of the main things you said is that it creates that, that habit of having sweetened beverages, that craving for sweet. Um, so I don't like to be restrictive for any foods because kind of like you said, I think the minute you say these are off, off limits, um, at least for my kids, if I say that, that's the very first thing they're going to find as soon as I'm gone, only because I've said we don't do this. Um, but certainly, like you said, like not, I mean, the habit should really just be water. And if we can create a habit where our kids find that as sort of their normal drink, that's probably the best you can do. I also though do don't want to, I want to eliminate the mom guilt. You're not poisoning your child. So, <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's going to be tons of things down the line, you know, life is full of hazards. And so the fact that your child's drank a few crystal lights, like you, she's going to be okay. But, um, <laughs> but make sure that we know that the habit we really want to create is, is water if possible. So perfect. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You haven't poisoned her. <laughs> yeah. I think she'll be okay. Um, anyway, thank you so much for joining us, Amber. I really appreciated it. This was a great talk and I commend you for your efforts for kids Thank everywhere. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And thanks for having me. This is fun. 
And thanks again for tuning in for another episode of Feeding the Family. I hope you'll join us again with new episodes every Monday. Again, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and some comments about what you'd like to see in the future. Thanks. Thanks.